Please open your Bibles up to the book of Ezra, the third chapter, and we're actually going to begin with verse 1. So that we get a feel for the flow of this text. This is the sixth week in our study of Ezra and Nehemiah, and we have heard how Cyrus called the Jews back to their homeland, back to take up residency in this city of Jerusalem and its surrounding areas and to rebuild their house of worship. And this week we come to the account of the restoration of the temple of the Lord. Actually, I'm sorry, I meant beginning with verse 8. And this week we will read Ezra chapter 3, verses 8 to 13. This is picking up from last week where we saw them setting up the altar of worship and beginning to offer sacrifices on that altar. And this week, actually, (laughs) once again, let me change, verse 6. This is the word of God, and it is eternally true. From the first day of the seventh month, they began to offer bird offerings to the Lord, but the foundation of the temple of the Lord had not been laid. Then they gave money to the masons and carpenters, and food, drink, and oil to the Sidonians and to the Tyrians to bring cedar wood from Lebanon to the sea at Joppa according to the permission they had from Cyrus, king of Persia. Now in the second year of their coming to the house of God at Jerusalem, in the second month, Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, and Jeshua, the son of Jozadak, and the rest of their brothers, the priests and the Levites, and all who came from the captivity to Jerusalem, began the work and appointed the Levites from twenty years and older to oversee the work of the house of the Lord. Then Jeshua, with his sons and brothers, stood united with Cadmiel and his sons, the sons of Judah and the sons of Hanadad, with their sons and brothers, the Levites, to oversee the workmen in the temple of God. Now when the builders had laid the foundation of the temple of the Lord, the priests stood in their apparel with trumpets, and the Levites, the sons of Asaph, with cymbals, to praise the Lord according to the directions of King David of Israel. They sang, praising and giving thanks to the Lord, saying, For he is good, for his loving kindness is upon Israel forever. And all the people shouted with a great shout when they praised the Lord, because of the foundation of the house of the Lord was laid. Yet many of the priests and Levites and heads of fathers' households, the old men who had seen the first temple, wept with a loud voice when the foundation of this house was laid before their eyes, while many shouted aloud for joy, so that the people could not distinguish the sound of the shout of joy from the sound of the weeping of the people. For the people shouted with a loud shout, and the sound was heard far away. All right. So, what do you think? are the lessons for us to be learned from this text. Well, let's look at it from the beginning, and then probably many of you can predict where we'll end up. First of all, please note as I read it, this is not how I read it. 
All right? And you probably, many of you are going to know what I'm going to do now. They sang, praising, and giving thanks to the Lord, saying, For he is good, for his loving kindness is upon Israel forever. And all the people shouted with a great shout when they praised the Lord, because the foundation of the house of the Lord was laid. And the people could not distinguish the sound of the shout of joy from the sound of the weeping of the people. The people shouted with a loud shout, and the shout was heard far away. That wouldn't work, would it? Uh, my voice is giving a lie to the text, and the text is giving the lie to my voice. And that's the whole sermon. And now let me reinforce the point. First of all, there is a reason for shouting. The altar has been set up. And what that means is that the work of restoring the proper worship of God and of demonstrating that they belong to Him has begun. They're sacrificing. They take animals and they kill them on an altar. There's blood. There's death. There's life. And all of this stuff is part of the worship of God. And the actual setting up of the altar and the sacrificing begins in the seventh month. And we saw last week why that was, because the seventh month was the time when uh, most of the most important religious holy days or holidays took place. Um, but notice what month this takes place. Verse 6 says, The first day of the seventh month they began to offer burnt offerings, but then look at verse 8. It says, Now in the second year, if they're coming to the house of God at Jerusalem, in what? In the second month. Zerubbabel began the work, the end of verse 8. And so what we see is that although the sacrifices and celebrations of the holy days began on the seventh month, a little bit later, the second month. Now this was after they had gotten through uh, most of the main religious holy days, and it was after they had completed the... Uh, bringing in of the harvest. So this was a time when they had time on their hands. You know, uh, in the fall, at our last church, which was mostly farmers out in the country, um, the, you, you can't schedule a lot of things. You may be able to schedule uh, an oyster chili dinner on a Friday night, all right? But it's night. And during the day, until the harvest is brought in, there isn't a lot of time on the hand. So often in the church calendar, you would look to see when you would have time available, and things would be scheduled after the bringing in of the harvest. The winter was a good time to schedule things, because although there were chores of milking in the morning and evening, most of the day there wasn't the pressure to get work done that there was in the summer and fall. Well, this is what's going on here. It's the second month. They've just brought the harvest in. They've gotten through Easter or through Thanksgiving, if you will. And it's time. Time is on their hands. It's time to do the work of building the temple. So they begin the construction. The construction of what? Well, the construction, again, the rebuilding of the temple that Solomon himself had built. And as the foundation was laid, the celebration, and I have trouble with that word because uh, it's rare that we use it except in a church context. We don't say celebrate. We say party. And it really was a party. Now, I know there are a lot of negative connotations with the word party. We think of debauchery. We think of sex. We think of alcohol. And yet there was certainly alcohol involved here. 
Um, but it was a party. It was a time of great joy and celebration. And if we look at verse 10, we begin to see how it began. It says, Now when the builders had laid the foundation of the temple of the Lord, the priests stood in their apparel with trumpets, and the Levites, the sons of Asaph, with cymbals, to praise the Lord according to the directions of King David of Israel. So the leaders of the celebration were the priests. They were wearing their special threads. And they were blowing their instruments, their trumpets. And they did this as the Levites beat their cymbals together. Now these cymbals were what we expect cymbals to be. They were two metal plates that were crashed together to give a beat. And this was how they worshipped. And these symbols are often mentioned in connection with the worship of the Old Testament. The best known text being Psalm 150. Look there with me, if you will, please. I am going to have you looking at a number of different texts, so be patient, please. Look at Psalm 150. This psalm is a psalm that every Christian uh, believes is part of God's gift to us of worship and music. And it has very clear commands. And although we don't have to maybe use the same instruments, we wouldn't take it that far. There certainly ought to be the spirit and the exuberance of this song. It says, praise the Lord, praise God in his sanctuary, praise him in his mighty expanse, praise him for his mighty deeds, praise him according to his excellent greatness, praise him with trumpet sound, praise him with harp and lyre, praise him with timbrel and dancing, praise him with stringed instruments and pipe." Praise Him with loud cymbals. Praise Him with resounding cymbals. Let everything that has breath praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. Now, can you imagine if nature treated this command the way we do? You know, imagine what the birds would sound like. I shut our windows at night when I go to bed late on Saturday night because I don't want those birds bugging me. And why do they bug me? Because they're exuberant in their praise. Can you imagine if the lion sort of slithered along the ground like the snake instead of prowling and roaring? Can you imagine if the universe was just slightly above our heads like most of our rooms? You know, eight feet, you know? I mean, what's, what's this luxurious sort of wasteful expanse, <laughs> you know? Why so much of the universe? Isn't this a bit extravagant? Couldn't the point have been made with lesser effort? Well, you know where I'm headed. There will be a hook to this sermon. And that is, it is amazing how all nature sings and round us rings the wonders of his praise. And what are we? We are repressed. So here we have it. It says, praise him. It's a command. Praise him with loud symbols. Praise him, in case we didn't get it, it says, with resounding symbols. Let everything that is breast praise the Lord. I once had, I once had uh, somebody tell me who knows organs that the perfect uh, echo for a church is three seconds so that the organ can echo. It sounds better. Resounding symbols, resounding organ. Design the church in such a way that the carpet doesn't deaden everything. I mean, it's really specific here. It says things should resound in the worship of God. You know, once we let it out, it should return to us. Okay? And all this, all the worship that we're reading of here, 
including these symbols that are commanded in Psalm 150, all of it is done, what? According to the directions of King David. David was the composer, if you will. He was the concert master. He was the choreographer. And here, many years after his death, Israel is still following his instructions in their worship. Now, we think of David as a mighty warrior, and that's legitimate. You know, that, That's our primary picture of him, you know. Saul has killed his thousands, but David his ten thousands. But the prayer book of the church, the book of Psalms, is filled with David's poetry. And it was David that calmed Saul's nerves by playing his harp. He was a mighty warrior, but he was a warrior who excelled as a dancer and as a musician and as a poet. And they're not in opposition to each other. He used his hands in the destruction of the enemies of God. He used his hands in giving glory to God. There can be little doubt then that David was a man whose worship came out of his heart. He was not cerebral and dispassionate and objective when he sang the praises of God. He just wasn't. Now, again, be patient, but turn with me to Psalm 28. And I just want to point this out. I admit it's not completely at random, but it is somewhat at random why I choose these three psalms, Psalm 28, 29, and 30. But just look at the evidence in these psalms for the absence of calm, cool, dispassionate objectivity on the part of David. It says in Psalm 28, verse 1, To you, O Lord, what? I speak. I direct my requests now. I call. Hear the voice of my supplications when I what? Cry to you for help. When I lift up my hands towards your holy sanctuary. There you have it. Lifting up hands. It's not just his voice. It's not just the timber of his voice, the projection of his voice. But his hands lift up. David is out of his heart giving expression to his need. Then verse 6, Blessed be the Lord, because he has heard the voice of my supplication. The Lord is my strength and my shield. My heart trusts in him and I am helped. Therefore what? My heart what? Exalts. And my song, when with my song I shall thank him. The Lord is their strength. Now how would it be if uh, this master poet, this master dancer, this master musician uh, were to meditate on the character of God Namely, here, verse 8, the Lord is their strength and he is a saving defense to his anointed. All right? If you were to meditate on these character traits, and being a musician who's very good and a poet who's very good, he'd come up with a poem that said something like, you know, uh, I will always be safe with God. God is my protector. In other words, to have the poem and to have the music express the very opposite of the trait that he's directing our attention to and he's celebrating. If he is going to celebrate the strength of God, would not the poetry and the music direct our attention in a way that conforms to the trait they're pointing to? The strength of God! You can't argue with it. And so when we read the Psalms and we read them in a drone, it, it is impossible. It's just absolutely impossible for us to be doing this with any awareness of what we're, we're reading. Save your people and bless your inheritance. Be their shepherd also and carry them forever. And if he's meditating on the traits of God as a father, as a shepherd who carries the little ones tenderly, those with young, 
All right? Would he, he carries the tender little ones. No, it would be he carries the tender little ones. In other words, there has to be some connection between the trait of God that we're celebrating and our projection, the tone, the way our body works. Look at Psalm 29. Ascribe to the Lord, O sons of the mighty, mighty, ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord the glory due to His name. Worship the Lord in holy array. The voice of the Lord is upon the waters. Now, have any of you been on waters? And I don't mean just bathtub. I mean waters. Have you been on a sea? Have you seen the crashing waves? Have you seen it toss boats? Have you seen it wash over the breakwaters so they're not even there? Many of you have seen this. So what would be the poetry and the music that would go with the crashing of the waters? When you go to Gloucester and you drive in on Cape Ann in northern Massachusetts, you drive into Gloucester, you'll see this, this statue there. And it's a statue for all those that go down in the ships. And if you read through the Psalms, you'll see that again and again, there are themes used of God saving people in particular situations. And here we see this reference to what is of such comfort to the wives and families of fishermen. Namely, that that God is in the deep. That God is the God of the waters. That we see this wonderful miracle where Jesus stills the waters. He's asleep. You know, that's how much the waters mean to him. As the boat is about to go to the bottom, he's asleep, taking a nap. All right? And so, here it says that what? It says, worship the Lord, ascribe to the Lord the glory due to his name, worship the Lord in holy way. The Lord is upon the waters. The God of glory thunders. Okay, so now we've got the waters, and it's not a small image. It's not a tender and dainty image. And then we've got another image that isn't tender and dainty, and it is the image of thunder. So what have you taught your children about thunder? Have you taught them that God is with them and will protect them? No. What a pathetic way to teach your children about thunder. What should you teach your children about thunder? You should teach your children about thunder that God made it! (laughs) You know? That this thunder is in the hand of God. That we worship a great and glorious God. Kaboom! (laughs) You know? Not... Don't worry, God's there. Even in the thunder, God's there. He's a very, very threatening God. You know, we should exalt in the thunder, knowing that the thunder is under His control. That earthquakes only move when He shoves the the tectonic plates. You know? That, that the rain turns into a deluge when he determines to do this. Isn't this the theme of all those final chapters of the book of Job? They're not speaking of the dainty things of God. They're saying, okay, snow, it inundates your house and your cars and it shuts everything down. Who do you think has the storehouse of that snow? You know? And, and so when God is a man as opposed to being a woman, do we rejoice as much in that as we do when he's dainty? Yes, yes, everybody can talk about how the cobweb is, is such a beautiful thing. And, and snowflakes are so intricate. But what about thunder? You know, this is the God we worship. The God of the deep, the God of thunder, the God of clashes and bangs. 
And then verse 4, the voice of the Lord is powerful. The voice of the Lord is majestic. The voice of the Lord breaks the cedars. Yes, the Lord breaks and pieces the cedars of Lebanon. He makes Lebanon skip like a calf. <laughs> and if you've seen it, it's a very, very graphic image. Calves don't... They're so pathetically um, angular. And they just hop. What? <laughs> you know? <laughs> and to see God doing that, the only thing you can say is it's exuberance. You know? It almost reminds you of, uh, well, I won't go into that, but uh, you can see it as a Department of Funny Walks skit. Okay? <laughs> you know, because these cats are going along and then, whoop! You know, and they just jump in the air and their 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 feet display and their their joints sticking out and they just jump. You know, power, intricacy and just exuberance, you know, jumping there. He makes Lebanon skip like a calf and Syrian like a young wild ox. The voice of the Lord hews out what? Flames of fire. The voice of the Lord shakes the wilderness. It is so pathetic today how uh, the modern man worships the wilderness without worshiping the God that made it. And so modern man thinks the wilderness shakes God. In fact, modern man goes out into the wilderness for the purpose of having it be their God and shake them back to reality. Um, but it's not that way. God made the wilderness and God shakes the wilderness of Kadesh. The voice of the Lord makes the deer to calve and strips the forest bare. Think of a wildfire. Some of you have read the books. Think of the wildfire. The unbelievable speed and power and heat of a wildfire. God strips the woods. Now, it might not be referring to a fire, but look at a wildfire as an image of God, of His power, of His majesty. And as we study fires, we learn that they're rejuvenating, that without a fire, you know, so many of the plants will not have the freedom to reproduce that they need to. Um, fire is a great cleanser and it does what is needed for new beauty and growth and life to, to come forth. And in his temple, what? Everything says what? Now, I don't know how they decided when they were translating this to put an exclamation mark after the word. But notice... There is an exclamation mark there. And in his temple, everything says what? Glory! And in case we're in any doubt about how that's to be said, verse 10 says, The Lord sat as king at the flood. Think of any flood you've ever seen, and then think of a flood that covers the earth. And he was the king of that flood. Yes, the Lord sits as king forever. The Lord will give strength to His people. The Lord will bless His people with peace. Then Psalm 30. I will extol You, O Lord, for You have lifted me up and have not let my enemies rejoice over me. O Lord, my God, I cried to You for help and You healed me. O Lord, You have brought up my soul from Sheol. You have kept me alive that I would not go down to the pit. Sing praise to the Lord, You His godly ones, and give thanks to His holy name. For His anger is but for a moment. His favor is for a lifetime. Weeping may last for the night, but a shout of joy comes in the morning. 
Verse 11, You have turned for me my mourning into dancing. You have loosed my sackcloth and girded me with gladness that my soul may sing praise to you and not be silent. O Lord my God, I will give thanks to you forever. When the Ark of the Covenant was finally restored to Jerusalem, what a joyful time it was. And remember, it was the great King David who was at the center of the parade. He was leading the procession into the city of God. Turn with me to 1 Chronicles 15, verse 15. And it has the picture there. Also in 2 Samuel 6, but first we'll read 1 Chronicles 15. There we see 1 Chronicles 15, beginning with verse 15. The sons of the Levites carried the ark of God on their shoulders with the poles thereon, as Moses had commanded, according to the word of the Lord. And if you know the prior story, you know the significance of that little verse there. All right? And then look at verse 16. Then David spoke to the chiefs of the Levites to appoint their relatives, the singers, with instruments of music, harps, lyres, loud-sounding cymbals, to raise sounds of joy. So the Levites appointed Heman, the son of Joel, and then skip down to verse 19. So the singers, Heman, Asaph, and Ethan, were appointed to sound aloud cymbals of bronze. And then, in verse 20, not just symbols of bronze, but what? Harps, tuned to Alamoth. And then, verse 21, leading with lyres, tuned to the Sheminith. And then, verse 22, the singing. And then, verse 24, they blew the trumpets before the ark of God. And then, verse 25, the final two words, with joy. And then verse 26, they sacrificed seven bulls and seven rams. You know, all of us should be very uncomfortable at this point because here we have increasing numbers of parts of our beings involved. You know, it's not just music, but now it's sacrifice, animals being killed, blood, all right? And then what? Even clothing. Their clothes, verse 27, now David was clothed with a robe of fine linen with all the Levites who were carrying the ark and the singers and Chenaniah, the leader of the singing with the singers. And what? David also wore an ephod of linen. And then verse 28, thus all Israel brought up the ark of the covenant of the Lord with shouting and with sound of the horn, with trumpets, with loud sounding cymbals, with harps and lyres. And then this little note in verse 29, it happened when the ark of the covenant of the Lord came to the city of David that Michael, the daughter of Saul, looked out of the window and saw King David leaping and celebrating. And she despised him in her heart. And that's opened up a little more in 2 Samuel 6, the parallel text. So turn over there with me, please. 2 Samuel 6, beginning with verse 12. As we turn there, I know some of you are going to be inclined to say, yes, but these were days of great joy. The day of bringing the ark into Jerusalem, the day of the rebuilding of the altar, the day of the laying of the foundation stones of the temple. 
that these were such special and extraordinary days. That's why they're called out. That's why there's such a point made about the joy. And I tell you, go to the book of Psalms. If this is the prayer book of the church, how can you look at the book of the Psalms and not see that this was a constant in their worship? Anyhow, regardless of whether we can escape simply by saying this was a special day, it was a special day. And on a special day, what was appropriate? Well, the answer is found here in 2 Samuel 6, beginning with verse 12. It says, David went and brought up the ark of God from the house of Obed-Edom into the city of David with what? With gladness. <laughs> did, you, did you all just hear that? Did you hear that? Isn't it interesting that the world, with its celebrations, is constantly infiltrating the church? But do you think they've ever heard us out there? Okay, all right. Unfair point? Maybe. I don't know. Verse 13, And so it was that when the bearers of the ark of the Lord had gone ten paces, twenty paces. Half a mile? A mile. I mean, let's not be extravagant here. Okay, here it is. When they had gone, one, two, three, four, five, six. Bam! <laughs> one, two, three, four, five, six. Now, that's a short space, and I'm big. When they had gone six paces, he sacrificed an ox and a fatling. <laughs> Every six paces. Isn't this extravagant? I haven't even gotten to the piano yet. All right? And then another six. One, two, three, four, five. I haven't even gotten there. One. And what? We've sacrificed three times in that short distance. Three times. He sacrificed an ox and fatling. And then verse 14, and David was dancing before the Lord but not to worry. It was a lilting sort of... You know? It was, it was a decorous dance. Not to worry. It was very, very proper. Now, this man was a warrior... How do you think he danced? How do you think he danced? If it says with all his might, how much might do you think this warrior had? Huh? It says David danced with all his might. And David was wearing a linen ephod. So David and all the house of Israel were bringing up the ark of the Lord with shouting and the sound of the trumpet. And again, then it happened as the ark of the Lord came into the city of David that Michael, the daughter of Saul, looked out of the window and saw King David leaping and dancing before the Lord. And she despised him in his heart. Now, brothers and sisters... There are times that a pastor and that elders are required to make judgments about the people of God. When you ask to join this church, those in leadership must make a judgment whether you have a believable profession of faith. And that's just the beginning of the office of judgment. I've gone over this many times. Outside of the world, the church, in the world, we don't judge. 
Inside the church we must. I have a judgment to tell you this morning. I believe that the reason that most of our worship is the way it is is because we're all living in fear of Michael. And not my daughter. (laughs) We are living in fear of those who despise the joy of the Lord. That's it. We don't want to make fools of ourselves. And it makes me sick. When I get up on a Sunday morning to preach, and all of you depend on me making a horse's idiot of myself, you know, you do. You want me to do this. You want me to preach in such a way that it's clear I'm not aiming for safety. And to have the entire worship service aimed directly in the opposite direction, namely safety, it kills me. I need to be able to build on something. And yet most of us in this church who have the gifts that are used here, and if you look at the text, you'll see gifts all over the place being used. Notice that the people that are stonemasons have done their work, and it is that work that they rejoice in, okay? You understand this. It is the work of blue-collar men who have sat down and have made some mortar and have put together stones for a foundation. It's when that work is completed that everybody parties. And it is the work of musicians, and it is the work of dancers. It is the work of those who raise up the animals who are then slaughtered. Everybody has a part. There are leaders, there are followers, there are administrators, there are people that pay the money to hire the people that do the work and that buy the the cedars of Lebanon to have them brought over. Okay? Everybody has a part. But Protestant, and specifically Presbyterian reform worship, really communicates that the only person that has a part is the pastor. And only when he preaches, and maybe a little bit when he prays, if he prays for my aunt who has a broken leg, and if he's visited me, and not the elders, because the pastor is the one I want to visit me, because he's the only one we listen to. You know, I'm so weaned to him, or not weaned from him, I'm so committed to him, so dependent upon him. And so we look at this text and we see that all through this text, uh, the theme of just, you know, again, extravagant, boisterous, uh, shameful, but in a very positive sense, a self-forgetful, childlike, skipping calf-like, crashing thunder-like, dancing mighty, uh, loud worship. And, you know, we have an infinite variety of ways of escaping what this should teach us. You know, we say that this is a function of a special day and we should not look to the normal Sabbath worship as having in any way anything in common with the day when the ark was finally restored to Jerusalem. That was a special day. And, you know, not every day is Christmas. Well, yeah, not every day is Christmas. But we still give gifts at a whole bunch of birthdays although they're declining as we have fewer children. But think of how many birthdays in the colonial times they had as as all these kids sat around the table. So, yeah, you can give gifts other days. And then sometimes just a gift for no reason at all. You know, in other words, the people of God who have been saved from hell and death, who have a future and a hope, who have a name, who have a nation, who have a family, who have a father, should be joyful people. But you know what? 
The reason we're not joyful is that we have not appropriated in faith the truths of Scripture. Do you understand what I'm saying? The reason we don't have joy is that we do not believe that God is our Father. We're so busy trying to restore the Father that we didn't have, trying to work through with psychiatrists and elders and pastors all of the lacks of our life that we don't rejoice in what we've been given by faith, that God is a Father from whom all fatherhood gets its name. And if you will grab that truth, that God has called you and adopted you and given you his fatherhood. So what is even a good father? I mean, I'm sitting here with an image of good fatherhood, several of them in front of me, but the one that jumps at me is, is the Halseys. You know, there Andy sits with his dad, and his father has been a good father and a faithful father. Don't worry, I'll never call out your name again when you come here. <laughs> but it's safe, because he only comes here once a year, so I can make him up tight. Um, even that fatherhood, it doesn't even bear thinking about compared to the fatherhood of God. And so if we see what God is as a father, then why would we not be joyful in worship? When we are able to come into this place and unite with several hundred people in the praise of the living God, in praying to him as if he knows us by name and as if he cares and as if he will answer, as if he has the power of the universe by which to address our concerns and needs, then why would we not be joyful? You know, there's an old saying, and the saying is, no man is a hypocrite in his pleasures. And I always think of this when it comes to the way we worship. Because the truth is, not one of us can claim that we just have sort of a racial or ethnic trip whereby we're always repressed. Because there are certain areas where we're never repressed. Last Two nights ago, we watched the, uh, the first round of NCAA games, right? And I'll bet you there were a whole bunch of Reformed Presbyterians in that place. When, uh, when Marilyn did what? You know, in the last three-tenths of a second, he shot from the corner a three-pointer, and it went in. Sweet. Boom. And Nicholas just lifts up his hands and runs into the locker room. And there right behind him is a coach for Wilmington, right? He's down on the floor, prostate. He's destroyed, right? He might have been a Presbyterian. <laughs> I, have, I have spent my life repenting of stupidity. And the latest stupidity I'm repenting of is not seeing the profound lessons in basketball and just feeling threatened by it. <laughs> if you can't beat them, join them. <laughs> you know? And let me tell you something. Looking at that game, you realize, again, there were many, many Christians in that place who were in the more repressed and dignified side of the continuum of, of Christian worship, okay? Okay? With me for a second, think. If you look at the involvement of the whole being in worship, body, okay, soul, mind, heart, 
You look at the emotions. You look at the body, physical movement. You look at music. You look at all the ways that we are made as human beings. And you look at a continuum of worship. You put the Pentecostals way over here, right? It, it, it don't matter. My body, my heart, I can dance. I can do anything I want. I can do it loud with crashing cymbals. And nobody's going to object. And then a little bit less, but still exuberant, are the charismatics. All right? And then somewhere here are the Baptists. Depends on what church you go to. But the Baptists can, especially with their music, they, they, they can get on it, you know? And then you go here and you've got the Lutherans and the Episcopalians, the Anglicans, right? They don't yell and their bodies aren't really involved, except liturgically there's so much bells and whistles, you know? There's smoke, there's bells, there's, you know, there's processing and there's the cross and there's the Bible held as you walk in and you stand and you sit and they walk here and they walk there. So there still is something way over here is what? The Reformed and Presbyterian community. Why? Oh, here's what we always say. They who would worship God must worship Him what? In spirit and in truth. And what we mean by that is in spirit only and in truth. And we act as if God made us intellects. And it really is sad that he gave us bodies. They are quite dangerous. After all, why did, after all, why did God make sex? It, it's such a nasty thing. I think that really it's such a dangerous thing that we, we better ban it from now on in the church. We'll all become like the shakers. And, and we'll, go out of, we'll go out of business, but we'll go out of business headed in the right direction. Because this is such a nasty, dangerous thing. There's been so much tragedy that surrounded it. That let's just get rid of it. But God made Adam and Eve. God made the man and woman, and he declared that they were what? Good. And he brought the woman to the man, and the man said, ah, <laughs> this is bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh. She shall be called Isha, for she was taken from Ish. <laughs> I mean, there's no confusion on the part of any man here about what's going on there. But it's such a dangerous thing, you know. Let's put it back in a box. Let's use not just that cheap cellophane stuff that you can just break open, but let's use some duct tape. Put it in the box, put it in duct tape. Usually the men that write commentaries are about as repressed a group as you can get because they've been properly trained when they got their PhDs. Because that's what getting a PhD is all about. It's learning not to make a fool of yourself, especially with language. But every once in a while, one of them jumps out of the box. And there was one commentary on this text that did say this, all right? If you can believe it, quote, The worship of Israel was no dull affair, nor any model for dry formality in Christian worship today. <laughs> Praise be, <laughs> you know, he got the point, <laughs> you know. And the thing that's beautiful is, is you go to the end of this text, what? It says... In verse 12, I'm sorry, turn back with me to Ezra 3. When you get to the end of this text, 
What does it say? It says, Yet many of the priests, Ezra 3.12, Yet many of the priests and Levites and heads of fathers' households, the old men who had seen the first temple, wept with a loud voice when the foundation of this house was laid before their eyes, while many shouted aloud for joy. Now what's going on here? What's going on is we don't really know. There are many theories about why they were crying. And I don't ever like to be original in anything I say from the pulpit about the interpretation of Scripture. In fact, I often tell you I have not one original thought, not one. All right. But the point I'm about to make, I didn't read anybody else making. It doesn't mean it isn't there. But you know what I think? I think that there is a sense in which, as we age, we are an accumulation of the brokenness of life, the tragedy of life. I think as we age, we have many joys, but more and more we are weighed down with the, the effects of the fall in the lives of our loved ones, in our own life, the, the terrible brokenness. In the midst of life, we live in death, says the old prayer book, and of whom may we seek for relief, but of thou, O Lord. And so I think that young people can just shout. There, there's a beautiful innocence about youth. I don't mean that they're not fallen. But there's a beautiful innocence about youth that they can just sort of be bits brains, you know? And just shout and party and have a good time. And I think that the older people look at the years the locusts have eaten. And I think that their hearts were actually joyful as they cried. Now, if you don't agree with me, the Lord bless you. But the one thing I do know is there was absolutely no competition. There was no conflict between those who cried with joy and those who cried with tears. All of it redounded to the glory of God. All of it was of a perfect harmony together. And it says in verse 13, so that the people could not distinguish the sound of the shout of joy from the sound of the weeping of the people, for the people shouted with a loud shout, and the sound was heard far away. You think of the celebration down on Kirkwood when we, we, when we won our games in the last NCAA tournament, and I think, what a tragedy that the people who are lost in the world have only IU basketball to celebrate. What a tragedy that they have never seen us is God's people partying and having a good time, dancing mightily before the Lord. What a tragedy. What is your home like? When people look at your home, do they see joy? Now, I don't mind if every now and then you have a fight with your wife and they hear you. That's no big deal. In fact, that's probably good because they see you're committed. Don't, don't quote me, but you know what I'm saying. <laughs> but do they see the exuberance and joy that should characterize a Christian home? Or are we a bunch of repressed nincompoops that think we live in our brains and God made bodies and it was a mistake? You know, do our children see the exuberance of love between mother and father that God gave us sex so that it's a good thing in marriage? You know, the Puritans were very sexual. Everybody gives them a bum rap. They celebrated marital love. You know, in our worship, would there ever be a threat that the neighbors would have something to complain about? that we disrupted their Sunday morning uh, Meet the Press or New York Times, that maybe we even caused them to be jealous because it sounded like there was a party going on in the sanctuary. 
And you think, oh, Tim, you know, chill out. There you go, making a fool of yourself again. I say, people, I need this. My heart needs it. You're musicians. The Lord has given you the gift of music, the gift of composition, the gift of poetry, the gift of dancing. This needs to be part of our worship. I need it. And I would hate to think that I have to give up Reformed doctrine in order to have my body and heart called to worship God. But you know, maybe some people have to do that. That's how much they need praise to lead them in their theology. Now I know there are many dangerous things about this. I know that one of the dangers is that we can have uh, we can have music lead us instead of us using music. In other words, tool, music can be the master instead of the tool. Yes, that's a danger. I know that the glory of God is not the goal. Is, is the goal, but not our feelings. I know that our feelings, again, must be the servant, not the master. Yes, I know that. The glory of God is the goal, not our feelings. I know that there are great dangers involved in unleashing the passions. Yes, I know that. But I still perform marriage ceremonies. Okay? I know that hypocrisy is always present. And where passions are dangerous and hypocrisy is present, there could be hypocritical passions. But I also know that hypocrisy is the tribute that vice pays to virtue. In other words, if we're going to be hypocrites, let's be hypocrites headed in the right direction for the right goal. In other words, is there any less danger of our minds and our mouths being hypocritical? No. So why do we have no hesitation in allowing people to be hypocritical and singing praise to God and in, in speaking praise to God, but we're not going to let them be hypocritical with their bodies because after all, do you know how many of those Pentecostal churches, the people don't even know Jesus. They don't even enjoy. It's a legalistic community. And here they are dancing around. Well, how many Presbyterian churches exist solely for the protection of the pride of the people in the pews? And so the pastor carefully guards them from the Holy Spirit, carefully guards them from having to lift their hands, having to kneel, having to dance, having to be exuberant, having to make loud, having to submit to loud clashing symbols. He orchestrates the worship in such a way that it is safe. And thereby orchestrates in such a way that it bears absolutely no resemblance to what will happen in heaven and what has happened on earth. You know something? If we're going to fall into hypocrisy, let's fall into it headed somewhere. Amen. Thank you, dear brother. You have taught me so much about this over the years. Such a worthy goal is worthy of risk. We have scriptural warrant for it. Scriptural praise was the expression of the whole being. Scriptural worship was designed to involve the whole being. The gift of every man and every woman contributed to that worship. Composers, rulers, priests, masons, carpenters, administrators, poets, and musicians. 
Let everything that has breath praise the Lord. Praise you, the Lord. Let's pray.